welcome to The Jay Martin Show. Now, if you are new to the channel, my name is Jay. I'm an investor, probably just like you. I've got three kids, run a small business. I'm just looking for the smartest home for my cash, probably just like you. Now, my guest today is Jeff Snyder, who is the founder of Eurodollar University. Now, the reason I had Jeff back on the show today is because I don't know anybody who goes as deep into the global monetary system as Jeff does. And over the last 18, 24 months, He's been promoting a very counter popular narrative, which is that we are not heading towards more inflation. We're actually heading towards very steep deflation. And he outlines a very compelling case on why, and most importantly, what that feels like in your wallet, in your portfolio, and how you and I can hedge accordingly. So fascinating conversation. I always learn a ton from Jeff. He's brilliant, very, very smart. As always, if you enjoy my content, I publish a weekly newsletter. It comes out every Sunday and it's free. I distill my greatest takeaways from conversations just like this and plenty others. There's a link right beneath this piece of content where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I'd love to have you join the team of over 40,000 investors just like me who are looking for the smartest home for their cash. All right, here is Jeff Snyder. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Jeff Snyder. Jeff, it's so good to have you back on the show. I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, my pleasure, Jay. It's always good to talk. Okay, so here's where I would like to start. When I was growing up, there was a cartoon on television. I think it was just called uh, Roadrunner, I believe. And in this cartoon, there were two characters, a roadrunner, a bird, and a coyote named Wiley Coyote. Wiley Coyote would always be chasing Roadrunner, never caught him. Roadrunner would always outsmart him. But often what would happen to the coyote is that... He would run straight off a cliff, right? In cartoon land, he wouldn't realize that the ground was no longer beneath his feet. He would be suspended in midair for a couple seconds, then realize he was hanging out in midair and plummet down to the earth. And I've recently heard you describe our economy in this way, that we have run off the cliff, we haven't realized the ground is no longer beneath our feet, and we are likely in for a big fall. And so I want to start with that. And my questions for you spun out of that would be, where did the ground go? Why haven't we noticed? And, uh, and what happens next, Jeff, from your perspective? Oh, that's a lot of stuff to start out with. I mean, there's a couple different things going on there. Um, yeah, you're right. I think that's a really good analogy because there is a sort of financial gravity or economic gravity that tends to assert itself. Um, and if you're not paying attention to it, 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 it's sort of like the cartoon where it just it feels like the, the rug has been pulled out from under you and everything just kind of collapses all at once when... In reality, you can see it coming. You can see all the warning signs building up, building up. And to answer your last question first, the reason most people don't aren't aware of it is because we're all watching, we're all told to watch the wrong things. For example, when you look at what is what, what represents the economy to most people? Well, it's usually something like GDP or the unemployment rate or, God forbid, the stock market. People think, oh, the stock market represents the economy. And you look... Stock market was down last year, but now it's coming back. So maybe things aren't so bad. The unemployment rate's at a 50 some year low. So, I mean, how can the economy be awful? Janet Yellen just a couple of months ago says, you don't see recession with unemployment rates this low, though she was wrong about that. And GDP, GDP hasn't been great, but it's certainly not terrible either. So you look at the main components that everybody looks at for what they think of the economy and they look relatively well. They look pretty decent. 
Um, they look even better when you think about all the massive headwinds and all the problems that have been thrown out the economy. You start thinking, well, not only is it not that bad, maybe the system is really good because it's holding up relatively well in the face of all of these negative factors and pressures. So you can really easily convince yourself that everything is doing fine if you don't look past those simple metrics. But when you do look past those simple metrics, you say, holy crap, we are the coyote. We're already off the cliff and now we're just waiting for gravity. So you've also made some comparisons to 2008 and using the same metrics, I believe you talked about the, the market recovery from uh, late 2007 and into 2008. You talked about Bear Stearns rallying, um, putting up new highs. GDP numbers were OK. Jobs numbers were OK. And an official recession wasn't declared until almost a full year after the real crisis had occurred. And so do you see similar parallels, therefore, in today's environment? Oh, they're even I mean, they're eerie. They're downright eerie because it's even more than that. You're right. The, the basic background was exactly the same and in, in a lot of different ways, because officials said, look at the economic data. It doesn't look all that bad, even though we have this massive housing bust going on. That everybody knows it's going to be a big problem. We get GDPs kind of hanging in there. The first quarter of 2008 GDP was down a little bit, and then it came back in the second quarter. A lot of the high frequency data, like payroll reports and some of those, they were down a little bit. They weren't that bad. Um, spending numbers appeared to, to be uh, doing relatively well. Plus, don't forget, we had oil prices and accelerating consumer price numbers. So the Federal Reserve, by the middle of 2008, in the middle of the, what would, came to be known the great, as the Great Recession, where they were more concerned about inflation than they were fallout from the banking crisis. I mean, this sounds right. so damn familiar because it really was. And if you're looking at the unemployment rate or you're looking at the labor market numbers, which are, at best are backwards looking, and you're looking at a consumer price index or something like that, which oftentimes isn't really representative of the economic fundamentals, at least in, in terms of how it's really going in the real economy, you take your eye off the ball and you can fool yourself into believing things aren't that bad. Because by June of 2008, the Federal Reserve said, we're not going to even have a recession. We might even need to raise rates in the second half of 2008 to get a hold of this inflation problem that we think that we have. And just like Wiley Coyote, it took just a couple more weeks before suddenly gravity asserted itself. And it wasn't just the economy. Everything just for most people, it appeared as if everything just kind of fell all at once and collapsed all at once when that wasn't true. It had been coming for more than a year by then. And there were all sorts of warning signs, all the same warning signs that we see here today that said, look out. If you're only looking at this narrow subset of the economic data or the market data, you're, look, you're not looking at enough things to really be uh, prepared for what's at, what the real risks are to the real economy, as well as the markets and the financial system. So you, you point out a couple of good things. And what I really appreciate about a lot of the content you create is you focus on trends and you stay away from predictions and they're different things. So what do you focus on then? Because we talked about jobs numbers, we talked about GDP, we talked about market performance, but they're lagging indicators at best, or they're just not accurately describing what's about to occur. So 
what are the warning signals, therefore, Jeff, that, that you're paying attention to that give you the conviction that you might not know when, but you know what? Yeah, you can get into tunnel vision. It's, you need to look at a broad survey of economic data, market data, and see what actually corroborates what else. I mean, you have to have a, a wide enough, a broad enough viewpoint and perspective in order to, to avoid that kind of tunnel vision. And you're right, because you can't time anything. You can't, you can never, I mean, as it's, 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 it's much as you might think you have everything figured out, you could never say when. So what I do is I start with bond markets and bond curves, because that's the monetary system. That's the financial system. That's people who have access to data we could only dream of. Inside information, inside the monetary system and financial system with close contacts in the real economy. And though these market curves are telling us what they're thinking, not just what they're thinking, but what they're most, most concerned about that they're actually acting upon. So if we see deflationary signals from these market participants in the form of changes in the curves, that's a warning sign. That's that's okay. Now we need to look and see, can we corroborate these signals in macroeconomic data? Can we corroborate it in different markets, such as commodities or some other place like derivatives? Is there other things that can corroborate what we're starting to see in some of these money and bond curves? And so if you get a signal in one place and then it gets replicated in another, then you see the data start to move in the same direction. That's when you start to believe, okay, with the trend, regardless of the short-term fluctuations and ebbs and flows, the trend is moving in that direction, and you have, you have to constantly check your assumptions and say, okay, that was what happened last month or yesterday. What does it look like today? Has anything materially changed? So if you start from the market curves and build your way out, you can get, a, I think, a really good sense of where we are and therefore have a at least a decent idea of what the probabilities might be going forward. Because you're right, Jay, you never want to make predictions because Predictions will only burn. You only, you'll never get a prediction right. But at least if you have a, a decent idea of the probabilities, you have a place to start. Could, could I ask you to get a bit more specific when you speak to paying attention to market curves and getting confidence from what you're seeing there? What, what numbers exactly, Jeff, are you paying attention to and what are you seeing right now that's raising the red flags? The easiest thing to think about is the yield curve. The U.S. Treasury yield curve, which is just the yields on government bonds and how they relate to each other along the maturity spectrum. And normally, a yield curve is supposed to be upward sloping. Upward sloping is beautiful. It's healthy. It's normal. Everything's good. So if the curve moves in some way outside of a gently upward sloping curve, that tells you something is changing inside the monetary system. Depending on what the shape changes end up being and what they end up looking like, that can tell you. Is the market thinking that we're going to go into an inflationary period? If so, we would expect the yield curve to steepen. We would see long-term rates rise relative to short-term rates. Even if short-term rates are rising, long-term rates would be rising a lot more. That never happened over the last couple of years. So the market was already telling you that whatever was going on with consumer prices, it wasn't going to last all that long. I won't use the word transitory, even though I just did. But essentially, that's what the market was telling us all along. And instead, what happened is, as the Fed pushed up short-term interest rates on the yield curve, long-term rates resisted and the yield curve flattened out, which is already a warning sign. And then the Fed persisted with rate hikes at the short end of the yield curve. And then long-term years start, last fall started to go down, even though the Fed was still hiking rates, which is a huge warning sign that something isn't right. And it's usually when you see that level of inversion or that, that type of inversion and the level it got to, that's a huge deflationary warning sign. So just the simple yield curve already tells you, okay, this is something going wrong. 
And then you can corroborate that with things like forward market real curves, something like euro dollar. Well, it used to be euro dollar futures. Now we use SOFR futures. Um, forward rates that tell you the same thing, where the market is more concerned and more hedged for rates to go down in the near future, which is another bad sign. That's not a sign of stimulus. That's a sign that central banks are going to be forced into trying to do something because of what the market is afraid of and what the market is hedging against. So just right there, you've got two key warning signs. These are very deep, sophisticated markets. Again, the the trading in it is the people inside the system using their inside information and knowledge and giving you a, a, a very good sense of what they're afraid of. What are they hedging against? They're not hedging against inflation and higher rates. They're hedging against what will lead to lower rates in the near term future, which is typically recession and deflation in the monetary, in monetary system and the real economy. And then you see the same thing happen, say, in the German curve. The German government bond curve, just like the U.S. Treasury yield curve, is showing, is showing us exactly the same thing, which is an even more powerful signal because the German curve never inverts. It doesn't usually invert at all. And here it is in massively inverted in a way it looks more like the Treasury curve than the German curve. So there's another one. You can look at forward interest rates, uh, forward rate markets in Europe, Euriber rates. Same thing. And so you go from market to curve and market to curve and market to curve, and they all tell you the same thing. You have a pretty good idea of what the monetary system and financial system and all of this inside information is telling you. Everybody is hedged to the max for rates to go down in the near term future. And the way we get rates to go down in the near term future is huge jump in unemployment because of recession, along with exactly what we've seen over the last few months, something like a banking crisis. Okay. Is it safe to say if I were to summarize that, and you tell me if I'm on base or off base, that what you're seeing is increased demand for long-term safety and liquidity because the market is hedging against recession risk. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's even one step further. It's not just recession. It's also the deflationary breakdown of the monetary system. So that's that's exactly it. You think about long-term long-term government bond yields. What the market is saying is that safety and liquidity are going to be in high demand. And when safety and liquidity are in high demand, interest rates go down. So that gives you the forward rate hedges too. So the market is absolutely screaming that at some point, probably this year, safety and liquidity are going to be in high demand. And then you look back over the last several months, is there anything that has happened that has dissuaded you from that idea or everything that has happened is actually consistent with exactly that expectation? If you were thinking safety and liquidity are going to be a high demand, well, you would expect a banking crisis where suddenly we're talking about bank failures again. I mean, it's it's a consistent picture from top to bottom here. Could you do me a favor? Because there's been so much commentary um, discussing an inflationary environment. You know, it continued inflation. Some even calling for uh, runaway inflation in the U.S. Obviously, you know, you don't align with that. But as a consequence of that being the hyperbolic narrative that sells really well, um, most of the financial commentary is focused on inflation, right? So if if we could spend a minute on with you explaining to my audience what a deflationary environment looks like, what that feels like for consumers and investors, uh, the impact on jobs numbers, the impact on just basic supply and demand, and any impact on market activity, you know, how does that environment operate? Well, it's basically the same as we've seen over the last 15 years. We're actually, you know, think about the immediate aftermath of 2008 and 2009. You have the economy that 
experiences a sharp rise in unemployment. That's, I mean, that's, that's the obvious one. We have labor market that gets decimated because that's usually where breakdowns in money and credit come from. You have a difficult credit environment because banks that have, that are impaired, banks that are only focused on their liquidity parts, liquidity parts of their uh, balance sheet, they're not going to be lending. They're not going to be looking to expand their activities. They're not going to be looking to do risky things. They're going to want to own government bonds. So the credit environment gets really difficult on top of a uh, deflationary unemployment rate, you know, things like that. It becomes very difficult. Not only do you have a recession, it becomes very difficult to recover afterwards. So you've got a myriad of problems that all get into the same thing, which then becomes the self-reinforcing spiral that goes into the stock market, for example. The stock market, which right now is thinking that the Fed's the end of the Fed's rate hikes is going to be positive, and if the Fed start cutting rates, that might even be more positive just like in 2008. But then eventually the stock market will realize like Wiley Coyote, these are all bad things. These are all bad things, not for just the real economy, but also for the stock market. So stock market goes down. Remember after 2008, how many years did it take for the S&P to recover its levels from October 2007? I mean, many years because the economy stayed depressed for a long period of time. In the bond market, interest rates fell to zero at the front end and they got pretty low at the long end too. You think just a couple of years ago, long-term 10-year treasury yield was down around 50 basis points. I mean, we're talking about the same type of environment in the bond market, uh, as well as forward rates and everything else where it really is a, a complete mess. And it leads to this problem where the economy just has a difficult time recovering from such a huge shock. So rather than you know thinking about commodities that are gonna take off in a super cycle, we think about commodities that are probably gonna get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as we're seeing today in oil prices, um, despite supply factors, demand just doesn't live up to the hype. It doesn't live up to the to the uh, promises because the economy is ham hamstrung by a banking system and credit environment that is more focused on safety and liquidity than actual economic processes like risk taking. Mm. So one event that I know a lot of people pay attention to, you, you know, you're looking at, at the uh... That's uh, the yield curve. And I'm, I'm grateful that you explained why and how you pay attention to that. A more common narrative that makes more headlines would be the impact of a locked up China slowing the economy. And if, if that is true, then wouldn't an open China stimulate the economy? You know, So could you comment on that headline that we've been seeing very frequently? Yeah, and it didn't work. <laughs> there was actually no reason to believe it would. Yeah. Um, it was sort of a just throwing darts at the wall and thinking, well, China's economy was a mess last year, but why? Well, there's a couple of reasons why that was, but most people thought, well, it was just, it was this pandemic politics, right? It was zero COVID and lockdowns. And so it would make sense that if we remove the lockdowns, at least it, it seems to make sense that if we remove the lockdowns, then China would be free to flourish. So the end of the, the end of the zero, zero COVID policy at the end of last year, a lot of people thought, okay. The West is, is experiencing all sorts of troubles, but here comes China to our rescue. China is going to be freed up uh, from, uh, from its pandemic cage and the Chinese economy, which is a behemoth. And if it really gets going, you know, it could possibly save us all from a recession. I mean, there's, there's a window into the soft landing. And some people even took that a step further and said, now that China's reopened, it's going to lead to inflation again, because there's all this massive buying that's going to take place. Supply sure. restrictions or you know, supply problems are still evident. And it's, it's going to lead to not just a, a robust economy, but even maybe restart inflation again. 
And it was all just fantasy land. It was never a real problem to begin with, because again, markets told us all along, China reopening, China's lockdowns were not the major problem in China. They made a bad problem worse, but China's economic difficulties go much deeper than the politics. So there wasn't a whole lot of optimism in commodity markets or rates markets or any place else over China reopening. That was more of a media creation to sell the restarted inflation narrative than it was an actual legitimate risk. And now here we are in May heading into June, and I think it's pretty well proven China reopening didn't do a damn thing. In fact, it fizzled completely just like Shanghai reopening did in the middle of last year, which is another thing. We already saw one reopening in China last year that did absolutely nothing for the global economy or even China for that matter. So we already had that precedent set. But now here we are. It's May, June. China reopening is not doing anything. We've got commodity prices that are now selling off. We've got deflationary signals there. I mean, oil, I mentioned that, copper, a bunch of other ones that are basically throwing in the towel, not just on China reopening, but the fact that now that there won't be much of a boost from China reopening, what does that mean as far as the risk to the rest of the global economy? Because now it looks like China, not only is it not moving forward into recovery, it might be actually dragged into the same recession that we're seeing everywhere else, which I means that's a whole different ball game there. So, I mean, it made sense why people would make a big deal out of China reopening because it thought if that was the problem in 2022, we solved that 2023 would be better. So what we're really seeing is the fact that that was that was the wrong mistaken premise to begin with. China's problems in 2022 went much deeper than just the pandemic politics. Mm. And so therefore, any any I don't want to use the word predictions. I'm trying to find a different word. Uh, but any any forecast on the oil price, um, you know, and, and again, a lot of my guests recently, they continue to point to China reopening. Uh, they have started pointing to the fact that Europe consumes more energy actually in the summer via AC and travel than they do in the winter. There's a lot of, you know, doom and gloom last fall about how is Europe going to survive with energy prices? And then turns out they did. But now they've got to get through the summer. So now the doom and gloom is surrounded around the summer. Well, AC and travel, and we're not talking about people using AC in their homes. It's commercial. That's what drives AC demand in Europe. Uh, you know, any any thoughts on any comments you would share with the oil bulls that watch my show, Jeff? That's a better question. Well, China reopening has failed. Obviously, the oil market doesn't agree with that. And Europe has solved its summer energy crisis, too, with Massive recession too. So demand for energy in Europe is falling off relatively sharply. We saw Germany's already in recession. Europe as a whole is not far behind. As industrial and manufacturing activity falls off even further, demand for oil is the big issue, which is why we see the oil curve right now as I'm speaking already back into contango again. Even though OPEC has cut back on its production, it has threatened to do more. The oil market is saying we don't we don't care about production anymore. We only care about supply and money. We've got oil prices in the US back below $70 a barrel. It's 13 cents in the contango on the front end. In fact, the July contract for much of today was below the September contract. So the market is telling you, we've solved higher energy prices in exactly the way the markets had predicted. Yeah, the markets predicted this way back a couple of years ago, that the cure for high prices was going to be high prices. Eventually, that was going to trigger all of these, these snapbacks that we're seeing China, Europe, and the United States. This recession, deflationary recession that's developing, obviously, if we have that level of demand, 
We're not going to see commodity prices go up. And of course, that's why they haven't. They've been going in the opposite direction because we're heading into a deflationary recession. If we're not there already, there's a lot of data that suggests the U.S. in particular, uh, just like Germany, has been in recession since the end of last year, which again puts us back in the same bucket as 2008. We didn't know we were in a recession until it became so obvious that everybody said, oh, yes, this is a recession. We've got a lot of recessionary signals, including uh, government data like GDI, which, I mean, in 75 years of data, um, when GDI is lower year over year, it has been recession every single time. So the idea of commodity prices and restarted inflation, what do they call it? Transitory disinflation. The markets are all telling you that's not happening. And so if you were to share any 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 thoughts on you know, what that looks like. But any any other symptoms within the economy that real people feel and have to experience, Jeff? Well, from their own personal perspective, I think most people, this is why I think they've been focused on inflation. Not only do they hear the same thing from the Federal Reserve and everywhere in the mainstream media, that's still what you see because consumer prices are still advancing at, a, at an uncomfortable and high rate. So it's, a, it's understandable why people would be thinking this is more about inflation. I mean, deflation, what the hell are you talking about? I don't see any deflation. Furthermore, you see the jobs market, the employment market isn't terrible. Uh, even though we do see recession signals in a lot of economic data, for most people, jobs market looks relatively fine. But again, that's this is very similar and very eerily similar to 2008. It wasn't until later in the, the second half of 2008 when the, when the employment market completely collapsed and commodity prices completely collapsed and consumer price increases completely collapsed that people went, oh, okay, this is a recession. So it was already eight months old by the time people started to actually feel it. So that's kind of where we are today. We're, we're seeing the warning signs of everything moving in that direction, but it's understandable why people just watching the show thinking, where is that deflation? What are you talking about? I don't see any of those things. Because if you're not watching the forward prediction, you know, the, the forward markets like, you know, rates and, and uh, bond markets and commodity prices and all these other things, it does look like we should be more concerned about inflation and consumer prices than not. So what we would expect to happen is as we continue to move in the deflationary recession direction, at some point, and we have no idea what point this will be, I'm betting it's going to be around September, because historically speaking, that's when these things really start to kick off. But at some point, we would expect that companies say, we can't hang in there anymore. We have to start making adjustments to our, 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 our businesses because our top line revenue growth has slowed way down. We're still getting price pressure, so bottom lines are contracting, which, again, GDI, corporate profits have sunk pretty sharply over the last couple of uh, quarters. Business is eventually going to say, we can't hang in waiting for the economy to turn around, waiting for some second half rebound. We have to start taking more and more determined measures. So we have to cut workers. We have to cut costs. We have to cut spending. And it just comes in sort of a deluge. And that's the point at which Wiley Coyote gets, gets reacquainted with gravity. 
Uh, until that point, most people, it's understandable why they think, you know, there's no recession here. There's no deflation here. And then uh, seemingly out of nowhere, it just hits all at once. So let's uh, let's pivot to the banking crisis a little bit then. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. You could look at this two ways. You could say these aren't these are major banks that have failed thus far in 2023. There's only been three of them. Uh, if I'm correct, though, the assets under management of those three banks that have failed thus far this year, First Republic, uh, Signature, and Silicon Valley, are already greater than all 40 banks that failed during 2008. The audience can fact check me on that, on that but I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Um, you know, what's next in that domino? A lot of people are pointing to the commercial real estate sector. I'm very curious about that. The regional bank exposure to commercial real estate is very, very high, higher than it's been in 20 years. So is that a vulnerable patch? Uh, but what are you looking at? What what red flags are you paying attention to? Yeah, it was to me, it's not about the bank failures. The bank failures are a symptom. Okay. Uh, here's a, I mean, most people don't realize that uh, in the 19, in the middle of 1980s, in 1988, 1989, we had over a thousand banks fail in the United States. Yeah, they were smaller banks or SNLs, but that five-year period between around 1986 and 1990, more. I mean, it was almost 2,000 banks that failed, and yet we remember the 80s and 90s very fondly. Right. I would doubt that most people, even my age, remember that we had a banking crisis at that time because economic growth was absolutely. It was a period of unparalleled global prosperity that was unleashed. So, economic or bank failures by themselves don't tell you much about what's really going on. It's the it's the monetary background that is producing either bank failures or uh, uh, cushioning the blow from bank failures. Because what you had in the 1980s into the 1990s was a robust global monetary background. So that we had a few, we had even a thousand banks fail in the, the SNL crisis. It didn't really make a dent in the monetary system or the economy. We don't really, it didn't lead to a second great depression because the monetary system was actually strong and robust. Whereas in 2008, the banks that failed tended to be the kinds of banks that create the money in the monetary system, which meant that the monetary system itself got imperiled in 2008, which is a whole different ballgame. And so in 2023, we have this dysfunctional monetary system as a background. So unlike the 1980s, the bank failures that we have today are a symptom, a very different symptom of what's really happening in the monetary background, which means something completely different. It's not about, you know, it's not about the Fed raising rates last year, causing these paper losses on U.S. treasuries, because all the bank has to do is put these in their hold to maturity assets, the bank book, and hold them to maturity, and they're fine. The issue with Silicon Valley Bank was that it was forced to sell these assets while they were underwater. And the reason they were forced to sell those assets was because they had a deposit migration that turned into a bank run. So they were forced to sell assets that they didn't want to sell. And the real, the more interesting question here is, as they were losing deposits, why were they not replacing them with other means? Things like wholesale financing. Why were they in the repo market? Borrowing funds back. And the answer was they were. They tried to get into the repo and, and, and secure some term, fun, term funding in order to mitigate the loss of deposits. So to the more interesting question as far as bank contagion and bank crisis moving forward isn't about underwater treasury. It's not about Fed rate hikes. It's about what is stopping the recirculation of funds as deposits leave these regional banks or deposits left Credit Suisse. Let's remember, this is a global problem. As they left these other banks and moved to, say, money market funds or larger banks, why were they not relent back to these other banks that were losing deposits, which is what's supposed to happen in wholesale markets? And that's the impediment that we really need to focus on because it's telling us that this thing isn't over. 
Uh, you just mentioned commercial real estate. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, and let's, let's not forget that commercial real estate is highly economic sensitive, which means as the economy gets worse and the economy gets more, more and more acquainted to gravity, that's going to cause even more problems in commercial real estate where prices have already started to move down, but yet valuations are still sky high. As prices continue to go down, valuations have to go down to match prices. That's when you start seeing bank losses, not from treasuries, but from actual commercial real estate portfolios and other similar products. And that's when in an, an environment where liquidity and funding is somewhat questionable, we start seeing more Silicon Valley banks that have nothing to do with selling treasuries. It has everything to do with contagion. It has everything to do with professional investors and in wholesale markets saying, I don't want anything to do with these banks. They want to come to me for funds. I'm not going to give them a dime because they're way too much of a risk. So there's a number of factors that tell us that Silicon Valley Bank, First, First Republic, Signature, Credit Suisse to a, a big extent, those were all symptoms of problems that we're still going to have to sort out as we go forward. I, I have to ask you the question then. So, and I, that makes absolute sense. And I agree. These are underwater assets that those banks could have held to maturity. The reason they could not is because there was a bank run. The problem, and, and that stuff might have been sustainable if there had been a recirculation of funds back into those banks, but that part didn't happen. And it used to happen, but it didn't happen. So you asked the question, I want to ask it back to you. Do you have any ideas? What is inhibiting the recirculation of funds back into these smaller banks? It's a lack of collateral. Um, part of it is commercial real estate. We don't know really don't know how much commercial real estate has been pledged and what kind of loans have been pledged. But essentially, to get term funding at any type of, I mean, these days, it's there's no unsecured market. So everything is collateralized, even derivative funding. You want a currency swap, you got to post some collateral somewhere. And um, banks that have all of these treasuries that, that, that are encumbered for other things have to find collateral, have to source collateral in other ways. Um, normally, in, in sort of a typical normal environment, you would take a bunch of your illiquid, say commercial real estate loans and CLOs or whatever the case, whatever you got on your balance sheet, you would go to a money dealer like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs and say, I want to swap this pool of illiquid commercial loans, commercial real estate loans for US treasuries. We'll do, we'll do a collateral for collateral swap. I'll take the treasuries and I'll go into the repo market and get some wholesale funding, hopefully term funding that'll tide me through this deposit migration or deposit run. So what is preventing any banks from doing that? And it's, I think it's the dealers are saying, I don't want your illiquid commercial real estate collateral because I can see it's not worth what, you're, what you want me to value it. And if things can continue to move in this direction, there won't be any market for this stuff to begin with, which means if you default, I'm stuck with illiquid collateral that I can't sell at a decent price, which is the last thing that anybody wants to do in any of these collateral for collateral swaps. So... Among different factors, I think the primary problem in wholesale markets, and I think the data validates this, there's a shortage of good quality collateral that's available to be reused by these troubled firms for, I think, pretty obvious reasons, because you don't want to get stuck where you could be, you, could, you don't want to get dragged into the same problems that these banks are experiencing. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, to, to recap some of this, you know, the banking crisis was a symptom, not the problem. The China narrative was a distraction, not the solution. What is the debt ceiling? Is this a crisis or is this just political theater? Or what, what do you make of, of, of this uh, media storm right now? 
It's another distraction. Absolutely another distraction. It's it's reminiscent of 2011 where we saw even worse debt ceiling problems. I mean, remember, we had the debt downgrade. And as soon as it got resolved, everybody forgot right about it. We went right back to the banking crisis. <laughs> so, yeah, it's one of those things where it sounds like it should be a big deal. And maybe it should be a big deal, but it really never is. I don't think that anybody realistically believed that there wouldn't be a de debt ceiling deal done. And, you know, the disruption that hit markets, especially T-bill markets, was mostly about overabundance of caution just in case something didn't happen, which kind of scrambled the rates markets a little bit. Um, but as we've seen over the last couple of days, in particular today, now that the debt ceiling deal has been made and it looks like it's going to pass, maybe, but I think high probability it's going to pass through Congress and be signed. Um, rates are going right back into the deflationary position as if this never happened to begin with. So in many ways, it was, you know, clickbait for uh, media to sell you uh, something that sounded very dramatic and sounded very awful and huge, but I don't think it was really that big of a deal. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes absolute sense. I think as I was looking into this, I think there's been 78 debt ceilings hit in the past and the same things happened every single time. So, you know, there's a lot of political theater that can occur, some negotiation back and forth. Um, and just for context, uh, it's May 30th for anybody watching this, um, just on that last comment. What's the implication though? Um, you know, in order to delay us hitting a debt ceiling, we do things like draw down the treasury general account. It's probably close to zero at this point. Like, do we need to replenish that? If so, how do we go about doing that? What's the impact on, uh, on uh, the deflation narrative in that scenario? Or is there one? Any thoughts on this? What happens next? Well, what will happen is the treasury will sell a hell of a lot of treasury bills. I think it's about $600 billion over okay. the next uh, next month or so. Um, I'm, I'm going off my, going off the top of my head, so don't quote me on that, but I think yeah, it's yeah. roughly about 600 billion, um, which some people have said, oh my God, this is gonna be horrible because that's gonna soak up all the bank reserves in the system because as the government replenishes its cash balance, that's money that comes out of the banking system, yes. to which I say, <laughs> who cares? It does, bank reserves don't matter, never have. Uh, the government is okay. going to sell a bunch of treasury bills, which, by the way, are in huge demand all across the system. There is tons of money in, say, uh, GC repo, just waiting for treasury bills to be issued. There's tons of money in the Federal Reserve's reverse repo, just waiting for treasury bills to be issued. So as far as the government building up its cash balance, which it's going to do, we all know it's going to do it. Um, I don't think it has that much of a disruptive effect. In fact, I think it might actually have a more positive effect than negative because one of the biggest problems in the, in the monetary system is the lack of, lack of best quality collateral, which happens to be treasury bills. Okay. And over the last several months, Janet Yellen has been winding down her bill issuance because she has to get into compliance with the treasury debt ceiling, which has meant that there's a shortage of treasury bills, especially regular benchmark bills. She supplemented them with cash management bills along the way, but regular benchmark bills have been in huge scarce supply so a, another flood of treasury bills might actually be relatively positive here, given the fact that it's, those, are, those are so scarce at the moment. Um, so as far as treasury, treasury Department refilling its coffers, that's going to happen. They're going to sell a bunch of bills, and then they'll start turning them out into notes. But I don't think that in and of itself will really change anything as far as the monetary system or the economic outlook goes. So that's quite in line with how we began this conversation. If there's such high demand for these T-bills, that's because the market is seeking out safety and liquidity, correct? Those are directly correlated, yes? Yeah, okay. and then there's the added added demand for actual collateral and reuse. 
So it's it's a different different form, but it's essentially the same thing: safety and liquidity. When uh, other you know lower quality uh, collateral out there becomes less workable, less usable, there's an increased demand for the same thing: safety and liquidity and the best collateral. So, what do you make of foreign central banks um, increasing their gold reserves? Is this along the same headline that they're looking for safety and liquidity? And in some cases, maybe a bit of diversification against U.S. Treasury, so they're looking at gold. But the idea, the concept is is the same, is it not? Would you agree, or what do you think? I think part of it is just, as you said, diversification. The other part of it is, in a low low interest rate environment, zero interest rate world, um, gold has there's no opportunity cost to holding gold. So I think there's some of the central banks have under, understand where this where this system is going. And it's not into a 1970s style uh, secular grade inflation that there's an attractiveness to owning owning gold, regardless of U.S. treasuries. Um, I think they is the Russians found out the hard way in 2020. The problem with owning gold is it's not liquid. It's not a liquid asset. So it's mostly a portfolio asset that it, it's, it's non-monetary in nature. So diversifying is more about investment considerations and things like that than it is actually about, hey, we're going to replace the dollar or we're going to replace U.S. treasuries. It's really just, it's a different form of portfolio asset that they can use. And if interest rates go down, then it's, you know, there's no opportunity cost to own to owning gold. Right. Now you just mentioned gold is a great asset to hold in a deflationary environment. Um, I'd love you to expand on that and maybe touch on this misconception that I, I feel like a lot of people have is that gold is a great asset to own in an inflationary environment, which hasn't really proven true. And I, I think the, the mistake people make is that maybe it's a great asset to own in a hyperinflationary environment, but not in an inflationary environment. Is that is that correct? Yeah, gold is a terrible inflation hedge. And when you say that, gold proponents get all oh, they get they get angry. They get really angry because that's what we've been told forever. But you're right. Think about just a even a an inflationary environment like you know the, the 1980s, uh, which was relatively uh, high rates of consumer price increases throughout the 1980s, but gold down, gold went down. You're right, Jay. It's it's about gold is a hedge against the biggest errors and the biggest errors in both directions. So gold did really well in the 1970s because we had out of control inflation. Gold did relatively well leading up to the 2008 crisis because we were heading into a bout of deflation. And it continued to do well even after the crisis, even though inflation sort of disappeared. So gold is a hedge against the biggest sort of errors because it makes sense. Because you think about owning an asset that could potentially be a bridge between a breakdown in one way or a breakdown in the other way into what, what comes next, gold has proven to be a valuable commodity uh, throughout history in, in being a bridge between one thing and another. So as, as a massive, her, massive error hedge, that's what gold actually is. As a regular inflation hedge, gold is terrible at that. I, I love a couple of things there. Gold is an excellent bridge between one thing and another. I want to maybe pull on that thread in a second. Also, that it's a hedge against the biggest error in either direction, right? Which is really like that's what a safe haven asset should do, right? Just pretty much nothing until things go real far south in either direction, right? And that's when you want the lifeboat. Um, were you going to say something? No, I'm just going to say that's, a, I mean, that's the way you have to think about it is that okay. it's, you know, in 2008, for example, which was obviously a deflationary event, gold was incredibly volatile. It went way up and then way down and then way up and then way down. I think it was three times up and down 
But at the end of the day or at the end of the crisis, gold was about where it started compared right. to basically every other asset. That was absolutely terrific performance. Mm. So if you can handle the volatility and you're thinking, OK, deflationary event, I mean, if ups and downs, I know that what's going to happen over time or over the, the length of the event, that gold is likely to perform relatively well against most other assets that are likely to get killed outside of safe and liquid assets like you know U.S. Treasury and things like that. Gold is absolutely a decent. Uh, it is, is absolutely a good idea. It's a it's a hedge thinking forward. Yes. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned a bridge, uh, a bridge between one system and the next or one thing and another. And I want to just pull on this one thing one more time. Could that be an incentive for foreign central banks, specifically BRICS nations who are, uh, maybe diversifying against us treasuries because they saw the sanctioning of Russian, uh, reserves and they're concerned about their, the well-being of their reserves. But is there a bigger question there? Is there a bigger question about them buying gold because there is maybe a belief that we're moving from one system to another? And obviously the question that I'm asking is, are we moving away from a US dollar system? There's a lot of commentary about this, about BRICS alternate currencies, about alternate trade currencies, gold-backed currencies, floating commodity currencies, all of this stuff. Uh, what do you make of this conversation, Jeff? Well, there's... We're conflating a couple different issues here. And I think, you know, what the BRICS nations are doing is they're trying their best to, to survive in an environment where dollars are simply scarce. And I know that people have enormous problems when you say that because they're saying, what do you what do you mean dollars are scarce? The Fed has been printing money since 2009. And that's the truth is the Fed doesn't print money. The print, Fed pr creates bank reserves. But I mean, real money is not bank reserves. Real money is what the banking system does throughout the euro dollar environment. And the euro dollar system has been constricted and constrained for the last 15 years, which causes enormous problems if you need a lot of dollars to engage in international trade, not just international merchandise trade, but also financial trade. So if you're China, who has the world's biggest dollar problem and you have you find it difficult to obtain dollars, you start looking at alternative ways to conduct bilateral and sometimes trilateral, multilateral trade, if only to, do, to limit your limit the need to use dollars in these international environment in the international transactions. So the Chinese aren't looking to replace the US dollar. The India is not looking to replace the US dollar. Brazil's not looking to replace the US dollar. They're just complaining about the fact that they constantly have to chase after dollars and it's getting incredibly difficult for them to do so, especially over the last couple of years, the last year, year or so. So it makes sense that they would try to transact in other currencies as much as they possibly can to limit their needs, to limit their requirement to access the global dollar system, which is incredibly difficult for them to do. That doesn't mean they're trying to recreate the global reserve currency system because they realize that's not a realistic option for them or really for anyone. Because a reserve currency system is incredibly detailed. It's incredibly sophisticated. There's so much logistics behind it that it's not a realistic thing for China, Brazil, or anybody. So what they're really trying to do is limit their dollar problem as best as they can. And if they can transact among common currencies in that limited environment, that's what they're actually going to do. So I don't see gold as sort of the, 
There's no impetus here to create a new currency arrangement using gold as the backing for it, as much as they're trying to deal with this massive dollar problem that they have no control over. So it makes sense that they would try to limit their dollar exposures. Okay. Would there be any any arguments against some kind of a, a China-inspired trade currency, global trade currency, because like, would the world ever gravitate towards a currency with capital controls, with nationalized industries? Like, is this, is this realistic that the world would trend that direction? Have confidence in a system that is operates in this way? No, that'll never happen. Nobody, nobody's going to want Chinese yuan. They don't want, I mean, are they going to want yuan backed by rubles or yuan and rubles together? I mean, that's not what people want. And there's an even bigger issue here. It's not just about the faith behind the reserve currency system. It needs to be available. That's what a reserve currency actually is. What it means is that you can have a country way over here on the other, other side of the world that has its own custom, its own laws, and its own monetary arrangement. They can easily transact with a country on the other side of the world because there is a common currency in between that is useful in both places that they can intermediate into. So if Norway wants to trade with Japan, they don't have to use, you know, the Japanese don't have to find a way to get kroner in order to pay for Norwegian imports or um, and the, and the uh, Norwegians don't have to find a use for yen. The U.S. dollar is usable in both of those places. Plus, it's available in both of those places, which is something the Chinese don't want. They don't want to make yuan available in too many places. I mean, the Chinese yuan offshore market completely died because there was no volume in it. So to to really to create a reserve currency system means you have to have a currency that is available and acceptable in a huge number of places. And the Chinese aren't going to, they don't want to make it available. And most people don't want to transact in yuan for those reasons and others that you just laid out. So okay. no, yuan is not going to be a reserve currency, a real reserve currency anytime soon. Are these transactions and deals that are happening on the margin, like uh, gold for oil deals, you know, um, you want for oil deals, you know, they're occurring, you know, between maybe two parties, maybe two, three parties. Are they significant enough or are they, are they so far in the margin that they, we shouldn't expect them to have an impact on the value of the dollar? Or would you say they, they can actually uh, create, you know, an increase or a decrease in the value of the dollar or are they completely unrelated? What do you think? They're unrelated to the U.S. dollar exchange value, certainly. And I think they're more symbolic than anything else because, Let's say Brazil is going to sell some stuff to China. They're going to get paid in yuan. What are you going to do with yuan? Well, you have to buy more goods from China, but Brazil still has to buy stuff from the rest of the world, which means you're not going to need yuan. So they're in a very limited sense. They're limiting the amount of dollars they need because they can they can transact directly with China. But that's not a huge that's not a huge part of the global trade system. That's not a huge part of the. Let's, I mean, we aren't even talking about global financial flows here, which are an even bigger bigger issue. So. As far as what countries are doing to limit their dollar their dollar requirements, it's just, it's really is at the margins here, and it's not going to affect it's not going to impact the global uh, the the exchange value of the U.S. dollar. Which again, I think we're going to see that going higher, just like it did last year. Because when we see deflationary crisis, when we see banking issues, shortage of U.S. dollars, that's U.S. dollar exchange value positive. You know you. Maybe my last question on China, and then I want to get into uh, just just one or two closers. Um, you talked about there being some bigger systemic economic issues in China, one of which I imagine is demographics, right? The country is getting, frankly, they're getting old before they're getting rich. And, and that's a, a very tough situation to survive. It's a huge country. And um, the 60-year-olds outnumber the 50-year-olds, the 50 outnumber the 40-year-olds, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, is that one of the core issues? And would that, I mean, if, if I was a, a you know, a, a trading partner and I was forecasting my next 20, 30 years of trading relationships, that would be a, a pretty big red flag um, in my planning, would it not? Yeah, that's a long run structural problem that the Chinese are going to have to deal with. But they have a more immediate problem, which is really the political realignment that has gone on under, under Xi Jinping's reign. Remember, China used to be about growth over everything. And that's that's a you know that's a communist party thing um, that was that goes back to the 1990s with um, with Deng Xiaoping you know the idea that China needed to transform its economy otherwise it would go the way of the Soviet Union around you know 2011 2012 the communists realized the global economy was impaired and so China wasn't going to benefit from the same level of global demand for it to manufacture all the world's products as it did up until then and so ever since Xi Jinping came to power. China has reoriented its economic priorities where it's no longer growth over everything. So China's long run problem here is that it's transitioning from the pre 2008 model of limited capitalism and free markets to more, not, not completely Maoist, but more something more closer, more, more closely aligned with communist ideology, which is Xi Jinping thought, common prosperity. There's a whole bunch of political philosophies here that are that are keeping China from doing the things that it used to do. So in the context of our previous discussion about what's ailing China, part of it is this political con conversion where it's not about the real estate sector anymore. It's not about pumping up the financial sector to try to try to create growth at, no matter what the costs are. The Chinese are very much trying to manage their own economic decline, realizing the systemic economic background is very different now than it was, say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So the Chinese government is no longer oriented for growth to begin with. And that's, I mean, that this transition phase to what they hope is the next stage um, is, is it's, it's going to be marked by a lot of volatility in the economy. And then, as you said, Jay, longer term than that, they've, they've got a massive demographic bulge that they're going to have to figure out a way to deal with, which only adds to this, mag to the, uh, they really better get this right, or it's going to be really real, real big trouble at some point. Hmm. Interesting. I want to uh, close by just asking about, you know, where you may see capital flowing in a deflationary environment. And I think we've, we've probably covered this. I mean, so, you know, if you're investing for deflation, right, you're going to look for long-term safety and liquidity. So maybe you'll look back at the treasury market. Uh, maybe you'll look at gold, right? Would you say that's a fair shake at where people might begin allocating capital, especially, um, you know, your, your generalist retail investor? Yeah, and I think, you know, to be a little more specific about the treasury environment, um, if you can handle the risk, the short run risk, uh, short term rates are where the most uh, opportunity is going to be because short term rates are still relatively high. And if the markets are correct about the probabilities of the deflationary recession, short term rates have a long way to go down, a lot, lot more of a way to go down than even longer term or middle term rates. So if you're looking for upside appreciation, look at short term rates. But with the caveat there that we don't know exactly when the Fed's going to turn around, we don't know exactly when the Fed's going to stop hiking rates. So there might be some short time, short term downside as maybe rates go up a little bit again. Are we going to get another rate hike uh, this month, next month? Because it's not June yet. Um, maybe. So the sh in the short run, that that level of uncertainty. But once we get Pat, once Wiley Coyote finally feels that he's off the cliff and we get reacquainted with gravity, short term rates are going to go down a lot more than longer term rates will. Yeah. Okay. Could you take a minute to explain Euro Dollar University? I know people are flooding in right now and you've got a lot, a lot of cool stuff happening. So 
I'd love you to explain exactly what you're building and, and what Eurodollar University is all about. Well, it's about trying to get people educated because uh, economics has done such a horrible job where it comes to money and finance and how the system actually works because these things actually matter a lot more than you give them uh, maybe the most people appreciate. So what is money? What is the monetary system? How does it work? What does the Federal Reserve actually do? That's what Eurodollar University is about, trying to answer these questions. And we go through in quite exquisite detail um, what the monetary system actually is. What are these global banks? What is a Eurodollar? Um, it's you know this offshore bank-centered monetary system. It's a ledger system. What is ledger money? So basically all of the monetary principles and the financial principles that you don't hear about on the mainstream media, you don't, you didn't learn in college because most of what everybody, most of what most most of what people know about money and finance is usually the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. And there's a hell of a lot more going on than just the Federal Reserve. In fact, the Federal Reserve is the least interesting part of the monetary system and the financial part, financial environment. So sure. Eurodollar University, we have memberships where we get into these details about the monetary system, how it works, how it all fits together. I also have research subscriptions where we go through what's going on right now. How does that fit into our longer run thesis or an intermediate term thesis? What does that mean about tomorrow? Basically, a little bit of everything about a monetary and financial, uh, you know, financial market focus on the macroeconomic environment. Yeah, I love it. I love it because it's it's in a very important look under the hood um, of how our world operates. Right? It's kind of like you know, when you're just speaking about most people don't understand, you know, what actually occurs behind the scenes in our in our our money system. It's kind of like getting in your car. What do you know about your car? Well, I know if I hit gas, I go forward. What if that doesn't happen? Well, I don't know. Right? I have no idea what happens there. Right. Um, I think you're doing a good service and I'm not surprised to hear that people are flooding in because, uh, you know, it's great content, Jeff, and timely. It's important stuff to know right now. So um, please check out Yellow <laughs> Euro Dollar University. And Jeff, thanks so much for coming back on, man. It's such a pleasure talking to you. I learned so much whenever we chat, both in advance when I'm prepping for your interviews, because like I got to make sure I know what I'm talking about when I have Jeff Snyder on. And then talking to you itself and, and all of it. So I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Well, it's always my pleasure. I always love talking about these things every, anyway. And, and, you know, I love talking to people who are genuinely interested and curious. And, you know, even if you don't agree with what I'm saying, you just, you just want to, you know, have a, a, you know, an art, a, a, a discussion about some of these, some of these topics that normally go by the wayside. I mean, I, th I think it's worthwhile just to think through things. So always happy to do it. Awesome, man. Awesome. Okay. Until next time. All right. Take care. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.